Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Asikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Asikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, December the 31st, uh, 2022. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. This is our last program for the year 2022. And we'd like to thank all of our listeners and supporters who have uh, continued uh, to tune in and, of course, uh, support this program uh, over the last uh, several years. Later on in our program, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the continuing international mourning uh, of the Brazilian soccer legend Pele, who passed away uh, this weekend. The government of the Republic of Tanzania is undergoing economic difficulties in light of a global international crisis. South Sudan is deploying 750 troops to the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo as part of a regional peacekeeping force. And opposition groups have held held a demonstration in Senegal uh, in West Africa over allegations of mismanaged pandemic relief funds. In the second hour, we continue our retrospective on the 55th anniversary of the Massey Lectures delivered by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. over the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in late 1967. Finally, we review some of the major issues impacting Africa during uh, the year of 2020. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned, and uh, we're going to take our musical interlude uh, with the music of the Bozi Boziana and Anti-Shock. Let's listen in. Hey. 
Welcome back, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast, and uh, of course, this is our last program for the uh, tumultuous year of 2022, and uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. That was the music of uh, the legendary Bozi Bosiana and anti-shock uh, band. Uh, from uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And that was uh, taken from an album entitled Mitsuri. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. Our lead story uh, deals uh, with the ongoing uh, mourning of uh, Brazilian soccer king uh, Pele um, all over the world. Uh, There have been tributes to uh, Pele. Uh, Pele from Brazil uh, was involved in uh, the winning of three World Cups on behalf of uh, the South American state of Brazil. In the Republic of South Africa in Sebokang Township, uh, the people there reacted on Friday to the death of uh, Pele, uh, the Brazilian king of soccer who won a record three World Cups and became one of the most commanding sports figures of the last centuries following his death. On Thursday, uh, at the age of 82, uh, Pele had undergone treatment for colon cancer since 2021 and had been hospitalized for the last month with multiple ailments. Widely regarded as one of the soccer's greatest players, uh, Pele spent nearly two decades enchanting fans and dazzling opponents as the game's most prolific scorer with Brazilian club Santos and the Brazilian national team. In Johannesburg, in the Republic of South Africa, Confederation of African Football instructor and former player and coach Kenneth Kubeka agreed with popular opinion that Pele was the greatest player of all time. Those sentiments were shared by another former player, uh, Peter Fire Kobani, who said uh, Pele would always be remembered as a legend of the sport. Pele's grace, athleticism, and mesmerizing moves transfixed players and fans. He orchestrated a fast, fluid style that revolutionized the sport, a samba-like flair that personified his elegance uh, on the field. He carried Brazil to soccer's height and became a global ambassador for his sport in a journey that began on the streets of Sao Paulo State, uh, where he would kick a sock stuffed uh, with newspapers or rags. And you can read more on uh, the legacy of Pele over the Pan-African Newswire. In the East African state of Tanzania, the Bank of Tanzania has blamed high inflation on most of the country's trade partners and the high commodity prices for continued pressures on its domestic market. Because of this unpleasant external environment, combined with elevating domestic supply-side constraints, inflation continued to trend upward, reaching 4.8% in September of 2022 in Tanzania mainland. The central bank said its economic bulletin for the third quarter of 2022 ended September uh, the 26th. It cited the same reasons for average inflation rising to 4.6% during the quarter compared to 4.1% in quarter two of 2022 and 3.9% year-on-year from quarter three of 2021. The rising inflationary pressures due to persistent global shocks had complicated the conduct of monetary policy by heightening the inflation growth trade-off, the central bank of Tanzania said. 
It added, in view of this, and given the inflationary pressures are driven by supply-side factors, the bank has opted for lessening monetary policy accommodation rather than full-blown tightening. The cautious policy stance aimed at aligning liquidity with monetary targets set forth under the International Monetary Fund's Extended Credit Facility Program and safeguarding growth of economic activities while containing inflationary pressures. The Bank of Tanzania noted that similar rising patterns of inflation were experienced in the East African community and the Southern African development community, regional blocks to which Tanzania belongs and trades with most of the other member states. But the central bank also underlined that despite edging up, inflation remained in line with the country's 2022-2023 fiscal year target and both the East African community and the Southern African development community convergence criteria. The main drivers of rising inflation during the quarter were prices of food, transport, and building materials, it reported. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. South Sudan now will send 750 soldiers to the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo soon to join a regional force fighting a rebel offensive, a military spokesman said just this last past Wednesday. Fierce fighting in recent months between Congolese troops and the M23 rebel group prompted the East African community bloc to deploy a joint regional force to quell the violence, with Kenya and Uganda also sending soldiers to the Democratic Republic of Congo. South Sudanese soldiers, quote, will leave for the Democratic Republic of Congo as soon as possible, unquote, a spokesman for the South Sudan People's Defense Forces, the SSPDF, Major General Lo Rai Koan, said during a ceremony in the capital of Juba. The 750-strong battalion has been undergoing training for more than six months uh, for their deployment, he added. At the Juba event, President Salva Kiir instructed the troops to keep order, urging them to protect the civilians and their properties from any harm. The ceremony came uh, barely four months after thousands of fighters, including former rebels Law Tukir and his rival, Vice President Reich Mashar, were integrated into the South Sudan military, a key condition of a peace deal to end the country's brutal civil war. And uh, finally, uh, in regard uh, to uh, developments in the West African state of Senegal, uh, hundreds of Senegalese demonstrated in Dakar yesterday to demand legal action after numerous irregularities were found in a report by the Court of Auditors on the Management of Anti-COVID Funds. That's according uh, to a Asian France press journalist. The crowd gathered at the Place de la Nation in Dakar under the call of a dozen civil society organizations shouting to the thieves, and you will not digest our billions. A large police force was deployed around the square to supervise the rally, which was authorized by the prefect and supported uh, by the opposition, which has already denounced the authorities' theft in recent days. In mid-December, an audit by the Court of Auditors of Senegal on the response fund against effects of COVID-19 amounting to more than 740 billion CFA francs, uh, more than 1.1 billion euros, financed by donors and the state in 2020 and 2021,
point to, quote, shortcomings, unquote, quote, overbilling, unquote, or, quote, lack of evidence, unquote, of expenditure. Civil society is demanding the resignation of all those implicated and the reimbursement of the alleged misappropriations. The government has defended itself uh, by stressing that the reported shortcomings concern less than 1% of the total amount of the fund and has promised to follow the recommendation of the Court of Auditors. Let justice be done. I am here to denounce the misappropriation of the fund, said Alirun Tine, founder of the Afrijam Center and a civil society figure. I am here to denounce impunity and the impartiality of justice. I am outraged to see that our leaders have embezzled our billions while we were between life and death, said Papis Ziata, a 35-year-old demonstrator. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, some 25 years ago. And since then, has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.com. Dot blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access uh, to uh, the Pan-African Journal as well, uh, all you have to do is log on to the Pan-African Radio Network. Uh, you can have access to today's program, uh, the concluding program for 2022 on December 20, 31st. Uh, and well over 1,200 other archive editions of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, taken uh, from uh, one of the legendary uh, four concerts of the Band of Gypsies. Uh, Today is the anniversary of the first two concerts, uh, December 31st, 1969, at the uh, Fillmore East in the East Village in New York City, uh, the Band of Gypsies, featuring uh, Jimi Hendrix on guitar, uh, Billy Cox on bass, and Buddy Miles uh, on drums. Uh, That uh, track was entitled Easy Water. And uh, right now we're going to move back uh, to continue our focus on the 55th anniversary of the Massey Lectures, uh, which were delivered by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. uh, in December of 1967 over the Canadian uh, Broadcasting Corporation. This is installment three of the Massey Lectures. Uh, Let's listen to Dr. King and his discussion on the role of youth in social change. The Best of Ideas presents the Massey Lectures for 1967. Dr. Martin Luther King, Nobel Peace Prize winner and leader in the movement for civil rights and nonviolent social change in the United States, is heard tonight with the third of his five half-hour talks on issues of conscience, violence, and change in world society. Tonight's reflections are on youth and social action. Dr. King. When Paul Goodman wrote Growing Up, absurd in 1959, he electrified the public with his description of the shattering impact on the young generation of the spiritual emptiness of contemporary society. Now, eight years later, it is not spiritual emptiness that is terrifying, but spiritual evil. In 1967, young men of America are fighting, dying, and killing in Asian jungles in a war whose purposes are so ambiguous the whole nation sees with dissent. They are told they are sacrificing for democracy, but the Saigon regime, their ally, is a mockery of democracy, and the black American soldier has himself never experienced democracy. While the war devours the young abroad, at home urban outbreaks pit black youth against young soldiers and guardsmen as racial and economic injustice exhaust human endurance. Prosperity gluts the middle and upper class while poverty imprisons more than 30 million Americans and literally starvation stalks rural areas of the South. Crime rises in every segment of society. As diseases are conquered and health improved, mass drug consumption and alcoholism assume epidemic proportions. The alienation of young people from society rises to unprecedented levels and masses of voluntary exiles emerge as modern gypsies, aimless and empty. This generation is engaged in a cold war, not only with the earlier generation, but with the values of its society. It is not the familiar and normal hostility of the young groping for independence, It has a new quality of bitter antagonism and confused anger, which suggests basic issues are being contested. These are unprecedented attitudes 
because this generation was born and matured in unprecedented conditions. The generation of the past 25 years cannot be understood without remembering that it has lived during that period through the effects of four wars, World War II, the Cold War, the Korean War, and Vietnam. No other generation of young Americans was ever exposed to a remotely similar traumatic experience. Yet, as spiritually and physically abrasive as this may be, it is not the worst aspect of contemporary experience. This is the first generation to grow up in the era of the nuclear bomb, knowing that it may be the last generation of mankind. This is a generation not only to war, but a war in its ultimate revelation. This is a generation that truly has no place to hide and no place to find security. These are evils enough to send a reason reeling. And of course, they are not the only ones. All of them form part of the matrix in which this generation's character and experience were formed. The tempest of evils provides the answer for those adults who ask why this young generation is so unfathomable, so alienated, and frequently so freakish. For the young people of today, peace and social tranquility are as unreal and remote as night errantry. Under the impact of social forces unique to their times, young people have splintered into three principal groups, though of course there is some overlap among the three. The largest group of young people is struggling to adopt itself to the prevailing values of our society. Without much enthusiasm, They'd accept the system of government, the economic relationships of the property system, and the social stratifications both engender. But even so, they are a profoundly troubled group and are harsh critics of the status quo. In this largest group, social attitudes are not congealed or determined. They are fluid and searching. Though all recent studies point to the fact that the war in Vietnam is our focus of concern, most of them are not ready to resist the draft or to take clear-cut stands on issues of violence and nonviolence. But their consciences have been touched by the feeling that is growing all over the world of the horror and insanity of war, of the imperative need to respect life, of the urgency of moving past war as a way to solve international problems. So while they will not glorify war, and while they feel ambiguous about America's military posture, this majority group reflects the confusion of the larger society, which is itself caught up in a kind of transitional state of conscience as it moves slowly toward the realization that war cannot be justified in the human future. That is the second group of young people. They are the radicals. They range from moderate to extreme in the degree to which they want to alter the social system. 
all of them agree that only by structural change can current evils be eliminated because the roots are in the system rather than in men are in faulty operation. These are a new breed of radicals. Very few adhere to established ideology. Some borrow from old doctrines of revolution, but practically all of them suspend judgment on what the form of a new society must be. They are in serious revolt against old values and have not yet concretely formulated the new ones. They are not repeating previous revolutionary doctrines. Most of them have not even read the revolutionary classics. Ironically, their rebelliousness comes from having been frustrated in seeking change within the framework of the existing society. They tried to build racial equality and met tenacious and vicious opposition. They worked to end the Vietnam War and experienced futility. So they seek a fresh start with new rules and a new order. It is fair to say, though, that at present they know what they don't want rather than what they do want. Their radicalism is growing because the power structure of today is unrelenting in defending not only its social system, but the evils it contains. So naturally, it is intensifying the opposition. What is the attitude of this second radical group to the problem of violence? In a word, mixed. There are young radicals today who are pacifists, and there are many who are armchair revolutionaries who insist on the political and psychological need for violence. These young theorists of violence elaborately scorn the process of dialogue in favor of the tactics of confrontation. They glorify the guerrilla movement, and especially its new motto, Che Guevara, and they equate revolutionary consciousness with the readiness to shed blood. But across the spectrum of attitudes towards violence that can be found among the radicals, is that a unifying thread? I think that is. Whether they read Gandhi or Franz Fanon, all the radicals understand the need for action, direct, self-transforming and structure-transforming action. This may be their most creative collective insight. The young people in the third group I mentioned earlier are currently called hippies. They may be traced in a fairly direct line from yesterday's beatniks. The hippies are not only colorful but complex, and in many respects that extreme conduct illuminates the negative effect of society's evils on sensitive young people. While there are variations, those who identify with this group have a common philosophy. They are struggling to disengage from society as that expression of their rejection of it. They disavow responsibility to organize society. Unlike the radicals, they are not seeking change, but flight. 
when occasionally they merge with a peace demonstration, it is not to better the political world, but to give expression to their own world. The hardcore hippie is a remarkable contradiction. He uses drugs to turn inward, away from reality, to find peace and security. Yet he advocates love as the highest human value, love which can exist only in communication between people and not in the total isolation of the individual. The importance of the hippies is not in their unconventional behavior, but in the fact that some hundreds of thousands of young people, in turning to a flight from reality, are expressing a profoundly discrediting judgment on the society they emerge from. It seems to me that the hippies will not last long as a mass group. They cannot survive because there is no solution in escape. Some of them may persist by solidifying into a secular religious sect. Their movement already has many such characteristics. We might see some of them establish utopian colonies, like the 17th and 18th century communities established by sects that profoundly opposed the existing order and its values. Those communities did not survive, but they were important to their contemporaries because their dream of social justice and human value continues as a dream of mankind. In this context, one dream of the hippie group is very significant. And that is its dream of peace. Most of the hippies are pacifists, and a few have thought their way through to a persuasive and psychologically sophisticated peace strategy. And society at large may be more ready now to learn from that dream than it was a century or two ago, to listen to the argument for peace, not as a dream, but as a practical possibility, something to choose and use. From this quick tour of the three main groupings of our young people, it should be evident that this generation is in substantial ferment. Even the large group that is not disaffected from society is putting forward basic questions, and its restlessness helps to account for the radicals with their angry protest and the hippies with their systematic withdrawal. When the less sensitive supporters of the status quo try to argue against some of these condemnations and challenges, they usually cite the technological marvels our society has achieved. However, that only reveals their poverty of spirit. Mammoth productive facilities with computer minds, cities that engulf the landscape and pierce the clouds, planes at almost outrace time, these are awesome, but they cannot be spiritually inspiring. Nothing in our glittering technology can raise man to new heights because material growth has been made an end in itself. In the absence of moral purpose, man himself becomes smaller 
as the works of man become bigger. Another distortion in the technological revolution is that instead of strengthening democracy at home, it has helped to eviscerate it. Gargantuan industry and government woven into an intricate computerized mechanism leaves a person outside. The sense of participation is lost. The feeling that ordinary individuals influence important decisions vanishes and man becomes separated and diminished. When an individual is no longer a true participant, when he no longer feels a sense of responsibility to his society, the content of democracy is emptied. When culture is degraded and vulgarity enthroned, when the social system does not build security but induces peril, inexorably the individual is impelled to pull away from a soulless society. This process produces alienation. Perhaps the most pervasive and insidious development in contemporary society. Alienation is not confined to our young people, but it is rampant among them. Yet alienation should be foreign to the young. Growth requires connection and trust. Alienation is a form of living death. It is the acid of despair that dissolves society. Up to now, I have been looking at the tragic factors in the quarter century of history that today's youth has lived through. But is that another side? Are there forces in that quarter century that could reverse the process of alienation? We now must go back over those 25 years to search for positive ingredients which have been there, but in relative obscurity against the exaltation of technology, there has always been a force struggling to respect higher values. None of the current evils rose without resistance, nor have they persisted without opposition. During the early 1950s, the hangman operating within the Cold War troops was McCarthyism. For years, it decimated social organizations, throttled free expression, and intimidated into bleak silence not only liberals and radicals, but men in hide and protected places. A very small band of courageous people fought back, braving ostracism, slander, and loss of livelihood. Gradually and painfully, however, the democratic instinct of Americans was awakened and the ideological brute force was rooted. By the way, Canada played a valuable role. CBC Radio produced a satire of extraordinary brilliance on McCarthyism entitled The Investigator, which was recorded and widely circulated in the United States with devastating effect. However, McCarthyism left a legacy of social paralysis. Fear persisted through succeeding years, and social reform remained inhibited and defensive. 
a blanket of conformity and intimidation conditioned young and old to exalt mediocrity and convention. Criticism of the social order was still imbued with implications of treason. The war in Korea was unpopular, but it was never subject to the such in criticism and mass demonstrations that currently characterize the opposition to the war in Vietnam. The blanket of fear was lifted by Negro youth. When they took their struggle to the streets, a new spirit of resistance was born. Inspired by the boldness and ingenuity of Negroes, white youth stirred into action and formed an alliance that aroused the conscience of the nation. It is difficult to exaggerate the creative contribution of young Negroes. They took nonviolent resistance, first employed in Montgomery, Alabama, in mass dimensions, and developed original forms of application, sit-ins, freedom rides, and wait-ins. To accomplish these, they first transformed themselves. Young Negroes had traditionally imitated whites in dress, conduct, and thought in a rigid middle-class pattern. Gunnar Myrdal described them as exaggerated Americans. Now they ceased imitating and began initiating. Leadership passed into the hands of Negroes, and their white allies began learning from them. This was a revolutionary and wholesome development for both. It is ironic that today so many educators and sociologists are seeking methods to instill middle-class values in Negro youth as an ideal in social development. It was precisely when young Negroes threw off their middle-class values that they made an historic social contribution. They abandoned those values when they put careers and wealth in a secondary role when they cheerfully became jailbirds and troublemakers, when they took off their Brooks Brothers attire and put on overalls to work in the isolated rural South, they challenged and inspired white youth to emulate them. Many left school not to abandon learning, but to seek it in more direct ways. They were constructive school dropouts, a variety that strengthens society and themselves. These Negro and white youth preceded the conception of the Peace Corps, and it is safe to say that their work was the inspiration for its organization on an international scale. The collective effort that was born out of the Civil Rights Alliance was awesomely fruitful for this century in the first years of the 1960s. The repressive forces that had not been seriously challenged for almost a decade now faced an aroused adversary. A torrent of humanist thought and action swept across the land, scoring first small and then larger victories. The awakening grew in breath and the contested issues encompassed other social questions. A phalanx of reliable young activists took protests from hiding and revived a sense of responsible rebellion. A peace movement was born. 
The Negro freedom movement would have been historic and worthy even if it had only served the cause of civil rights. But its laurels are greater because it stimulated a broader social movement that elevated the moral level of the nation. In the struggle against the preponderant evils of the society, decent values were preserved. Moreover, a significant body of young people learned that in opposing the tyrannical forces that were crushing them, they added stature and meaning to their lives. The alliance of Negro and white youth that fought bruising engagements with the status quo inspired each other with a sense of moral mission, and both gave the nation an example of self-sacrifice and dedication. These years, the late 60s, are the most crucial time for the movement I have been describing. That is a sense in which it can be said that the civil rights and peace movements are over, at least in their first form, the protest form, which gave them their first victories. That is a sense in which the alliance of responsible young people, which the movement represented, has fallen apart under the impact of failures, discouragement, and consequent extremism and polarization. The movement for social change has entered a time of temptation to despair because it is clear now how deep and systematic are the evils it confronts. That is a strong temptation to despair of programs and actions and to dissipate energy in hysterical talk. That is a temptation to break up into mutually suspicious extremist groups in which blacks reject the participation of whites and whites reject the realities of their own history. But meanwhile, as the young people face this crisis, leaders in the movement are working out programs to bring the social movements through from that early and now inadequate protest phase to a new stage of massive, active, nonviolent resistance to the evils of the modern system. As this work and this planning proceed, we begin to glimpse tremendous vistas of what it might mean for the world if the new programs of resistance succeed in forging an even wider alliance of today's awakened youth. Nonviolent, active resistance to social evils including massive civil disobedience when that is need for it, can unite in a new action synthesis the best insights of all three groups I have pointed out among our young people. From the hippies, it can accept the vision of peaceful means to a goal of peace and also their sense of beauty, gentleness, and of the unique gifts of each man's spirit. From the radicals, it can adopt the burning sense of urgency, the recognition of the need for direct and collective action, and the need for strategy and organization. And because the emerging program is neither one of anarchy nor of despair, it can welcome the work and insights of those young people who have not rejected our present society in its totality. They can challenge the more extreme groups to integrate the new vision 
into history as it actually is, into society as it actually works. They can help the movement not to break the bruised reed or quench the smoking wick of values that are already recognized in the society we want to change. And they can help open the possibility of honorable compromise. If the early civil rights movement bore some international fruit in the formation of a Peace Corps, this new alliance could do far more. Already our best young workers in the United States are talking about the need to organize in international dimensions. They are beginning to form conscious connections with their opposite numbers in other countries. The conscience of an awakened activist cannot be satisfied with a focus on local problems, if only because he sees that local problems are all interconnected with world problems. The young men who are beginning to see that they must refuse to leave their country in order to fight and kill others might decide to leave their country at least for a while in order to share their life with others. There is as yet not even an outline in existence of what structure this growing world consciousness might find for itself. But a dozen years ago, there was not even an outline for the Negro Civil Rights Movement in its first phase. The spirit is awake now. Structures will follow if we keep our ears open to the spirit. Perhaps the structural forms will emerge from other countries, propelled by another experience of the shaping of history. But we do not have much time. The revolutionary spirit is already worldwide. If the anger of the peoples of the world at the injustice of things is to be channeled into a revolution of love and creativity, we must begin now to work urgently with all the peoples to shape a new world. Dr. Martin Luther King with the third of his five Massey Lectures. Next Monday night at this time, he will talk on nonviolence and social change. Tonight's talk was produced in Atlanta, Georgia, by Janet Somerville and Del McKenzie. This is Ken Haslam speaking. Good night. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, part three of the historic uh, Massey Lectures delivered by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. in December of 1967. Some 55 years ago, uh, they were broadcast over the Canadian uh, Broadcasting Corporation, the CBC. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. And here in the city of Detroit, where we're broadcasting from on January the 16th, we'll be holding our 20th annual Detroit uh, MLK rally in March. It'll be at the historic St. Matthew's St. Joseph's Church at 8850 Woodward Avenue. And, of course, uh, it will uh, focus on the legacy of civil rights, human rights, uh, the struggle for an end to war and for peace. We'll take a break. Uh, we'll be back with more of our program for the week.
This is a man's world This is a man's world But it wouldn't It wouldn't be nothing Nothing Without a woman Or a girl You see Man made Car To take us over the road To carry the heavy load Man makes the electric light To take us out of the dark Man made the boat for the water Like Noah made the ark This is a man, a man's world A woman or a girl Now listen Man thinks about little bitty baby girl And baby boys Man makes them happy Cause man, he makes them toys
without a woman or a girl oh, Without a woman or a girl This is, this is, this is a man, a man's world The voice The curtain has come down on 2022. It has been a year of mixed outcomes, some good, others not so good. Once again, the economy and particularly its impact on the cost of living was and still is a source of concern. A peace deal over Tigray, an escalation in DR Congo, sporadic coups in West Africa, terror attacks in Mogadishu and a volatile Sahel define the peace and security front. But a smooth transition in Kenya's politics, continuity in Angola and a key outcome at COP27 lit up an otherwise tumultuous year. So this week on the program, we walk you back on the year that was 2022. I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. And we have a lot to unpack. Let's now bring in our panel of experts. Joining us from Johannesburg, Professor David Monyai, international relations and foreign policy expert. Joining us via Zoom from Enugu in Nigeria, Dr. Ifediora Chimezi Amobi, an economist. And in London, also joining us via Zoom, Dr. Andrew Yauchie, senior fellow, Norwegian Institute of International Affairs. Gentlemen, a very warm welcome to you all. First of all, Africa has entered 2022 with a long and urgent to-do list. Before we look at specifics, I want to get your assessment and thoughts on the trends that you feel shaped Africa in 2022. What were some of the issues that stood out for you and which you feel had an effect on Africa this year? Let me start off with you, Dr. Yao Chie. Uh, thank you very much. I think one of the first things that has been uh, top of the agenda this year has been the issue of climate change and the impact on climate and security. Uh, that is uh, by far probably one of the biggest things that have been talked about this year, but also as we see uh, some of the challenges uh, across the continent have been exacerbated by this. Uh, second thing is really terrorism um, and the impact that terrorism is having uh, across particularly border areas, uh, border areas in this could be the Lake Chad Basin, the Sahel uh, and other regions. And then instability when it comes to constitutional changes that are ongoing, but also transitional uh, governments. So this idea of transitional governments uh, that have agreements that are put in place, 
uh, oftentimes from coups, as we see in particularly in West Africa, but actually these agreements that uh, oftentimes don't lead uh, to, to the fulfillment of the agreements or the stipulations within the agreement themselves. And, and sort of the fifth thing, uh, and not to say that it's limited to five, there are several, obviously, and other speakers will pick them up, particularly around the economy. And uh, I'm thinking of Ghana, from Ghana where I'm from, where we now see a 50% inflation. But the fifth thing, which I think is, is important to talk about, mm-hmm. is the issue of cross-border challenges. Uh, really what you're seeing across border and the movement of people, migration, uh, continue to be an issue, but also we're seeing African uh, states uh, trying to find more ways of integrating uh, these uh, challenges. Uh, and what I mean by integrating uh, ways in which the nations and the leaders can find ways of being able to allow for cross-flow of migration uh, because of challenges that we're seeing arising from various parts of the continent as well. All right. Dr. Amobi, let me get your view. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, yeah, in, in addition uh, to what he has said, um, in 2022, Africa has come a very, very long way. Um, we are actually, you know, we're yet to recover from a lot of uh, the ills that have actually happened everywhere from uh, socioeconomic declines uh, to droughts to flooding, um, migration issues, uh, you know, cross-border conflict, like I said, you know, all those things. And then uh, just uh, to add all that, uh, one of the key things that have actually shaped the continent um, this year has been uh, the crisis uh, in the Ukraine. Um, Africa has been very, very dependent on uh, Russia as well as, um, as Ukraine, um, especially in terms of uh, you know, food, uh, you know, grain, um, fuel, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, that goes through Europe. And uh, this has affected uh, the continent. Uh, we've seen prices escalate um, because of uh, high gas prices in Europe, um, which has affected, you know, even my country here in Nigeria. I mean, we're a major oil producer, but a lot of our, um, you know, finished crude oil is right. actually imported. So we, yeah, we export crude. It is refined overseas and then brought back in at, you know. As raw petroleum, and so you know we pay a very very high price uh, for that, and we have seen diesel and kerosene and you know aviation fuel prices etc. You know more than quadruple in 2022, uh, and so it has actually affected everything else around the economy. And um, you know going into the elections early next year, it is a big 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 political issue and uh, will affect the decisions that people are going to make going forward. Right. Uh, Professor Munyai, what's your view? I concur with my two colleagues. Uh, in addition, I think when it comes silencing the gun, one of the major agenda of the AE, I think we have seen an increase uh, in that uh, regard. Uh, with the crisis in Africa's political capital itself, a crisis in Ethiopia uh, in terms of the conflict and uh, possible peace that uh, was uh, brokered here in South Africa. Uh, we also seen uh, tensions um, in Mozambique increasing, um, threatening the region, uh, as well as in the uh, Great Lake region with the M23, um, the destabilization and all um, 
issues that are raised that um, Rwanda is supporting the M23. So these are some of the issues uh, in addition to endless coups that we've seen, mainly West Africa, North Africa. Uh, but beyond that, we also have seen an increase in terms of attraction of the continent uh, by big powers. Um, other than China, we've seen the United States coming quite big, uh, designing a strategy for the continent around August and the visit by uh, the Secretary of State Blinken to a number of African capitals, including Pretoria. But there, there has also been other smaller powers uh, in the Arab world that has been involved uh, in Africa. And uh, it has been a mixed bag, uh, good and bad, uh, given the fact that we still uh, right. suffer from the hangover of the COVID-19. All right. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Amobe, I want to come back with one of the issues you've mentioned here, and that is the Ukraine-Russia conflict, which has dominated the world focus for all of 2022, let's say. And many in Africa are wondering what the long-term geopolitical implications of this crisis will be on Africa. What's your view? Well, I mean, I think it's going to be devastating. What it actually portends is that um, as uh, the rest of the world enters into the winter months, um, you know, heating oil prices are going to really escalate, which will translate down here in Africa, whereby... You know, we're currently experiencing you know, massive price shocks. Right. Um, you know, I mentioned, you know, fuel and food. Um, and so, you know, the whole value chain, transportation costs, bringing these things down to the various countries, as most especially the poor areas, having the people there not be able to afford, um, you know, a lot of this item, which is now leading to massive insecurity across the continent. What are we going to see as the potential? Mm -hmm. It is not going to be eased up very, very soon. Um, I foresee more of this going on at least into, you know, into the early part of next year, into the first quarter of next year. Um, so our political development is really going to be you know, hampered until that is resolved. Uh, Professor Munyai, I, I want to come back to the Ukraine-Russia uh, conflict here and, and find out from your view, though, I mean, um, what did, how did Africa react, though, to this? How did Africa uh, deal with the situation? And how do you see Africa dealing with this moving forward? I think one major lesson um, coming out of the Ukraine crisis has been the pressure exerted on the continent by the United States and Western powers. Um, and equally, we have seen a pushback by some African countries to bring a situation in which what appears as if it's a division that uh, a bulk of African countries voted for certain resolution while others uh, are pushed back, um, went for neutrality uh, or non-aligned non uh, positions. And, and, and that, I think, for the very first time, I think, at the geopolitical level, uh, we see Africa setting itself. And this has extended to other issues and questions asked. Uh, involvement of the continent, for instance, in G20, mm -hmm. with the possibility of the AU um, 
getting um, a seat uh, in addition to what South Africa has. Uh, therefore, the continent might have two seats within G20. And more questions are asked about the United Nations Security Council and other important institutions of global governance. To what extent can Africa democratize these institutions and legitimize them, uh, ensure that uh, decisions that are taken uh, at the global level uh, involves Africans, with Africans in, in the room. Right. Uh, Dr. Amobi, let me come back to you very briefly on the inflation that we saw across the continent because globally uh, people are experiencing inflation at levels not seen for decades. Africa also faced a slow recovery from the pandemic. So what has this meant for Africa in 2022? What kind of disruptions did African economies suffer? Very, very significant ones. Um, inflation in most African countries actually you know, almost doubled, and we saw figures uh, you know, across the continent. Like the global um, pandemic was devastating um, economy-wise, uh, inflation-wise. People were also um, displaced from the workplace. Uh, the lockdown affected um, you know, farms and farmers, women that, um, you know, subsistence you know, providers for their families. Um, luckily, there's been, a, you know, what I would actually refer to as a, as a quick recovery um, in some parts of Africa. Uh, South Africa, that was hit more than the rest of the continent, is still recovering um, you know, but has actually made significant progress, um, you know, just like um, other parts of the continent. We were, you know, particularly, um, for lack of a better word, you know, lucky here in Africa that uh, the, you know, the disaster that we actually expected from the pandemic uh, wasn't as bad as a lot of the pundits had actually, you know, thought it was going to be, and so. Yes, um, you know, we experienced an increase in all indicators, um, inflation, unemployment, displacement, like I said, you know, um, output um, most especially. Right. Um, how is it going to affect us going forward? Uh, it's going to be a, a gradual, gradual recovery. We are going to have to match it with all the other ills that we're experiencing at the moment, the conflicts uh, across our um, borders, and of course, you know, we just talked about uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, there's some other ills, there's security, there's insurgency, there's terrorism, there are religious conflicts, you know, all those things um, will, you know, just translate into a slow but steady and sure recovery going forward. Right. So, Dr. Yao Chi, I want to stay on that conflict issue that uh, uh, Dr. Amobi has just mentioned because you know, it's been a mixed bag for the continent. You know, the Ethiopian government and the TPLF uh, signed an agreement to put an end to the two-year civil war. But, you know, the world's longest-running conflict, on the other hand, in the DRC continues. The Sahel region remains unstable. How do you see uh, the AU having fared here? How did Africa fare? I think uh, when it comes to these conflicts, I think the... The, the continent has done its best to adjust, uh, and what I mean best is we've seen uh, an African-led mediation team go in, particularly a, a president, a former president Obasanjo, lead 
uh, the way to try and bring the parties together. And that is a good thing. We should celebrate it, despite what pundits have said. Um, I think we are seeing efforts, particularly in um, the Great Lakes, to resolve the issue. Uh, we see that the East African forces being deployed there. I, I would argue that the challenge here, though, is that uh, while there are, uh, or there's a tendency for the African continent to deploy military force as the first result, we should be looking and investing more in mediation uh, and preventative diplomacy. And I think this is one of the things that I would like to see happening, particularly from the AU. I know it's restructuring, or it's going through a restructuring process, but some of this would be good to see more pre preventative diplomacy, but again, mediating. Uh, and I know it has played a role and continues to play a role, but particularly with the RECs, the regional bodies, how can these two partnerships uh, be strengthened? strengthen, enhance, uh, to be able to deal and rectify and, and, and in essence to avoid uh, or divert some of these challenges that the African continent in, in these regions have. But I would say this, I think it's also important while we have these challenges that we also uh, as Africans admit some of the challenges that we have. We do elect these officials in. And so if we have these challenges, then we also, and I would argue, we need to think about the people that we're, we're electing. Mm -hmm. Who are these people that we're, uh, we're pulling in leadership positions? Are they the right people for the jobs? And if they're not, then what are the alternatives that we have uh, for us, uh, for the continent, but also for the types of leadership that we want, in, in essence, uh, going forward? All right. So, um, Professor Munyai, we've seen a lot of... Uh re-entry of, of uh, some other major powers that you mentioned there earlier. You talked a little bit about the geopolitics and what's been happening on the continent. So what have been the interests and objectives though, for Europe, the United States and China in Africa in this regard? I think what we've seen um, tensions among big powers with the U.S. and Western countries, particularly Europe, um, ganging, and for the lack of a better term, ganging against um, Russia and China um, as far as the African continent is concerned, um, making uh, really serious uh, threats that Africans should not do business with these two countries. Um, and, and there has been a pushback from the African continent that the continent does not need a supervisor someone to supervise the relation that the continent will have with other external role players. And therefore, I think we see an, an increase in terms of um, the minerals that my colleagues have been mentioning, um, uh, core and strategic minerals um, that we have as we move into um, green, um, uh, clean energy, I think you will see more of that uh, taking place. It's a kind of a, an emerging Cold War. Um, however, this needs the continent to unite, speak with one voice, and indeed have a strong leadership. Uh, the bigger question is, uh, this is the second time they go to Washington. Mm -hmm. Why shouldn't the U.S. Uh, leadership come to the continent? Uh, why should we go to every power that calls leaders, African leaders? Uh, should we go to all these places, or we should use our own capitals to uh, hold some of these important meetings. All right, hey, gentlemen, we are going to take a short break on that note. And when we come back, we will look at Africa's take away from COP27 and whether there is reason to be optimistic on the climate front. To stay with us.
Welcome back to Talk Africa. Let's continue with our discussion. Still with me on the program, joining from Johannesburg, Professor David Monyai, international relations and foreign policy expert. In Enugu in Nigeria, Dr. Ifediora Chimezi Amobi, uh, he's an economist. And in Abuja, Ifioma Malo, founder Clean Technology Hub. Well, let me start off with you, Ifioma, because the Africa COP took place in Egypt. Now, Africa loses between 5% to 15% of its GDP to climate change, according to climate statistics. Was COP27 a net positive or negative for the continent? Um, some people would argue that there's a net positive. Others would say that, you know, um, there were a lot of things that happened at this COP that were not uh, a benefit to the continent. Um, but let me start with a few of the positives. Um, I think the historic uh, creation of a loss and damage fund uh, to support communities whose lives and their livelihoods have been damaged or ruined uh, by the worst uh, impact of climate change was a definite positive. Um, that bill almost didn't get made, um, and we didn't get everything that we asked for in the loss and damage fund. But the fact that it, ha it went through, uh, and there were commitments that were put into, into that fund already, mm -hmm. um, is, is a plus. Um, there were also African-led uh, initiatives to cut emissions and build climate resilience. Um, and then there was significant work on the mobilization of finance. We could see that in the commitments made by the AFDB, and there, there was one by the Africa 59, and other partners who launched the African Green Infrastructure Alliance, the AGEA, um, which is an alliance to create and catalyze capital to address climate uh, challenges on the continent. Mm -hmm. uh, and then lastly, you had the UN uh, Secretary General announce the $3.1 billion uh, funding uh, to ensure that there is a protection of planet and people and building early warning systems uh, in the next five years. Now, the challenge is how, you know, African countries are going to leverage this financing because it's not the first time that we've had announcements around uh, big funds being dedicated to, to climate financing. We had a lot of commitments in past COPs, and we haven't seen that money. Uh, and so the question and the challenge a lot of people are asking is, well, we're great. it's great that all of these commitments were made, mm -hmm. um, but then how then do we make sure that there is um, – ability to leverage that finance and bring it onto the continent, not have it remain in, in Western countries, um, and use that to actually do a lot of the adaptation and, and mitigation work that needs to go on on the continent. Uh, well, if you have, you've mentioned uh, the loss and damages <clears throat> being one of the key victories at the COP27. What exactly will this mean for Africa? I mean, how much of a game changer is the facility on loss and damage? Uh, first of all, even the, the notion of getting uh, Western countries uh, to agree to something that is akin to a reparation fund is huge. Um, you've not had that in the past. You've had a lot of, uh, you know, buck passing when it comes to trying to think about uh, the, the people or the, the, the countries who are the greatest emitters or polluters uh, when it comes to climate and what they need to do about it. One part of it is actually getting them um, to accept responsibility, which is what this loss and damage fund is. Mm -hmm. The second is actually getting them to put some money into ensuring that there is now mitigation um, for those countries who are bearing the impact of those, of those uh, climate disasters. And Africa, all of the data and all of the, uh, um, all of the indices shows that Africa is bearing the brunt of the climate challenges. So this is why it's not um, um, surprising that we had a lot of the European countries announcing a total of 105 a million in new funding. You had Denmark, Finland, Belgium, Ireland, you know, coming together um, and putting together these global environment facility funds uh, to target the immediate climate adaptation 
for low-income countries, which mainly are sub-Saharan African countries. So it's a huge game-changer for Africa. All right. So there's a lot that happened on the continent uh, in 2022. Professor Munyai, the biggest political event of the year happened in China, you know, the CPC National Congress. What were the important political outcomes here, and, and how do you see some of those decisions having a bearing on Africa? Um, the CPC 20th Congress, I think, was a landmark. I think it has given the world, in Africa in particular, a clear uh, signal in terms of which direction uh, is President Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership is taking the country and the contribution that China is going to play at the world stage. I think for me, what stood out were two major concepts introduced by President Xi Jinping, uh, namely um, the uh, global development initiatives uh, as well as global security initiatives. Uh, these are important uh, concepts that uh, align with what Africa is talking about when we talk within uh, the AU Agenda 2063, for instance, as well as uh, within the Global South, uh, strengthening multilateralism, as well as understanding fully that one cannot talk about development in the absence of security. And the two are two sides of the same coin. And therefore, I think China's contribution will be significant in this regard. And if we continue on that thought, uh, uh, Professor Monyai, China has systematically increased its involvement in Africa for over 20 years now. Um, the U.S., as we've talked about earlier, has held a U.S.-Africa summit this year to expound primarily on its U.S.-Africa policy. So what have been the discernible different styles from what you can see, the styles of engagement between China and Africa and the U.S. and Africa? Uh, it, it, firstly, it has to do with the narratives. Uh, one, it seemed to me um, the United States tend to talk to or talk down to Africans uh, in terms of you must do this, um, and also an element of preaching. Uh, you must uh, adopt our way of life um, and uh, without really giving Africans a chance to contribute to the whole notion of democracy. As it stands, democracy is threatened even in the Western countries, particularly the United States itself. I think we've seen disturbances in so many areas within the U.S. Right. Uh, however, the Washington, Washington um, tends to preach to Africans on these issues, while China, on the other hand, tends to take a much more collective um, discussions without interfering uh, in the domestic affairs of African countries. And therefore, I think there's a huge gap between Washington and Beijing as to how they approach uh, the continent. All right. So I want to get your, uh, your thoughts here on when you look back in 2022, because we've had a lot of discussion here on um, what Africa did in 2022. But what do you think Africa should have focused on but failed to in uh, 2022? Do you think Africa has ended 2022 on a high or on a low? Let me start off with you, Ifioma. One of the things uh, that has happened is this conversation around just transition and energy transition. That, com that conversation was going on before the Ukraine war, uh, the Ukraine-Russia war, but has now been amplified because of Africa's place in that war. The whole battle for gas, gas supply, the, the whole issue around um, energy insecurity and countries now deciding to go back on commitments they've made, 
um, not to open up new coal mines or new gas fields, um, have a reverberating effect uh, on sub-Saharan Africa. They said that we're going to reduce emissions, but now we're now having to, we are now seeing people go back to those commitments, and that, that means we now have to now start uh, um, exploring our own gas supplies. I think there should have been a bit more thought about that, but I think now that we're doing it, um, it's showing that, you know, we have to sort of put our own interests first. Uh, before the considerations of other countries. Dr. Amobi, the economies have suffered massively in 2022. What do you think Africa should have focused on but did not? Africa should focus more on education, more on capacity building. Um, we can't afford to just worry about our stomachs and what we're going to eat and, you know, shelter. Those things are basic. We should start thinking beyond basic. We have to train our people uh, given that about 70% of, of Africa's population um, are classified as poor, and um, we've had this trend for the past 30 years, we should start thinking, you know, 30 years from now, going forward, where is the next, you know, group of children? How are we going to, to actually prepare them to take over the continent? And um, they have to be educated. We have to find ways of really breaking the cycle of poverty, cycle of dependency, cycle of you know, desolation, etc. All right. Uh, Professor Monia, you have the final word. I think there are a core set of issues that uh, need to be tackled. One is the unity among Africans around Agenda 2063. Uh, concentrate on issues of peace, negotiations uh, in terms of dealing with the conflicts on the continent and um, speed up the process of regional integration through infrastructure development uh, and ensure that we speak to the outside world with one voice, uh, understanding what are priority areas for the continent and who are really our friends and do we advance our own interests as we enter into relationship with strategic partners such as China, your German, your Japan, and the United States. We can't just be pulled to all directions. We need to advance our own interests instead of being uh, preached upon. Indeed. Thank you very much. Well, that's all we have time for on this edition of Talk Africa. A big thank you to our panel of experts. Joining us from Johannesburg, Professor David Monyai, international relations and foreign policy expert. Joining us from Enugu in Nigeria via Zoom, Dr. Ifiadiora Chimezi Amobi, an economist. And also joining us from Abuja, Ifioma Malo, founder Clean Technology Hub. In London, also joining us via Zoom, Dr. Andrew Yauchie, Senior Fellow, Norwegian Institute of International Affairs. Remember, you can be a part of this conversation through our social media platforms on Facebook and Twitter. And you can also watch this and other editions of Talk Africa on our YouTube playlist. Do join us again next time for more Talk Africa. For me, Beatrice Marshall and the team here in Nairobi. Until next time, Happy New Year. Welcome back, and uh, that was the review and analysis of uh, events, some of the events of uh, 2022. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, December 31st, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. This is our last program uh, for uh, the year 2022. want to wish everyone a happy and productive uh, new year.
And uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. so hard to forget you. And uh, right now, I want to move into our concluding segment uh, for the program for the year. 
And uh, this is a continuing uh, overview of events uh, for 2022. Hello and welcome to our Year Ender Show. It's been a challenging year for Africa, but one that has had many bright spots too. We have a lot lined up for you from our correspondents who are standing by from various cities in Africa. In Egypt, Cairo, we have Adel Mahoui. And in Zimbabwe, Harare, we have Farai Mwakutia. We'll also have guest analysis to dissect some of the top stories that shaped 2022. Well, as we mentioned, 2022 started with the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which impacted Africa in a number of ways. Food prices increased, jeopardizing food security. On the diplomacy front, Africa found itself under pressure to pick sides in the conflict. However, many countries chose to take a non-aligned position, an indication perhaps that the continent has come of age and is able to decipher how its interests are best protected. CGTN's CGTN's Wilke Sanyawa tells us more. Russia and Ukraine are substantial players in the global commodities market and the significant agricultural trade between African countries and Russia and Ukraine. The International Grains Council estimates that together they supply about 14% of the world's wheat supplies and there is significant agricultural trade between African countries and Russia and Ukraine. TradeMap, the World Trade Organization's international trade database, estimated that in 2020, Russia exported $12.4 billion worth of goods to Africa. So when it came to diplomatic responses to the conflict, each of the 54 African countries responded in different ways. You have to recognize that each state is governed in different ways and has different international relations and different domestic needs that are served by those international and foreign policy relations. While voting on the Russia-Ukraine conflict at the United Nations in March, 28 African countries supported a UN resolution condemning Russia's operation. On the other hand, Algeria, Tanzania and South Africa emphasized the importance of diplomacy but did not condemn Russia's actions. A total of 17 African countries simply chose to abstain from the vote. I think you have to break down and look at individual African countries and why they took the position that they did. And it's probably related to security relations with, with, with Russia. It could relate to financial relations with Russia. It could relate to a variety of things. AU Chair and Senegalese President Maki Sall visited Russia in July on a trip he said was aimed at minimizing the conflict's impact on Africa's supply of agricultural products and fertilizers. The continent has consistently sent signals that it is choosing non-alignment. As the Russia-Ukraine conflict continues, it is also disrupting agricultural and food supplies while threatening trade and economic growth on the African continent, influencing how Africa responds. Well, a few months into the Russia-Ukraine conflict, global oil and gas prices doubled and the cost of living in Africa skyrocketed. Inflation rates reached double digits in many countries across the continent. Food security worsened. Many countries rely on Russia and Ukraine for a significant percentage of their wheat, fertilizer or vegetable oil imports. But the conflict disrupted global commodity markets and trade flows to Africa, increasing already high food prices in the region. Well, for more on this, let's bring in Adel Mahui, who is at Egypt, Cairo, and Farai Makutia, who joins us 
from Harare. Well, let's just start with that point of the effect in the Russia-Ukraine conflict on Egypt's food crisis, which is described as an existential threat to the economy. Adel, can you tell us more about how the conflict impacted Egypt and neighboring countries there? Well, Egypt, in terms of direct impact when it comes to food security from the Russian-Ukrainian crisis, the country says that it has been affected uh, with an estimated 1.5 billion U.S. dollars in the food sector alone. That comes in direct and indirect impact on its food because Egypt relies heavily on Russia and Ukraine for its basic foods. We're talking about 70 to 85 percent from essential goods like wheat and vegetable oil come from these two countries. And therefore, with the crisis emerging, food prices was quite a challenge and to allocate other resources was a huge challenge for Egypt. And that has pushed the country for two tracks. The first is to diversify its uh, food imports that it desperately needs so that it wouldn't rely heavily on one or two countries as we've seen in the Russian-Ukrainian crisis, but also to expand its agricultural land productivity and cultivation. But this is a long-term plan that Egypt has been on uh, this track for about uh, three to four years but of course it takes a lot of time to expand the cultivation and yield better um, agricultural uh, products but at the same time the country is moving to enhance its agricultural techniques in the already cultivated land so that it can improve the productivity uh, per acre across the country and that helps by using um, w um, advanced irrigation techniques as well as modern, uh, modern agricultural techniques to maintain that the current land can produce its maximum while the country moves to expand the area of cultivated land. Let's head over to Zimbabwe's capital, Harare. Farai, even before the conflict between Russia and Ukraine broke out, Zimbabwe's economy was already saddled with rising inflation, low foreign direct among other challenges, Paint us a picture of the situation in Zimbabwe. Well, indeed, Hannah, inflation continues to be a thorn in the side of the flesh of ordinary citizens as well as authorities here. Latest statistics show that monthly inflation has come down to, has gone up slightly to about 2.5%. Annual inflation has come down from 255% to about 243%, but still one of the highest rates in the world. And that has a direct impact on how people have spent their money, have gone about, uh, you know, spending their money. Incomes have been eroded and money isn't going as far as it used to. And that's been felt by many ordinary citizens here. The saving grace of what has come to the rescue of many is the fact that diaspora remittances have risen quite substantially. And so that is what's driving a lot of the domestic demand that we're seeing, a lot of domestic expenditure, particularly in terms of uh, creating retail demand as well as in the construction sector, where a lot of people continue to build their own homes. That's been driven largely, indeed, by that, um, you know, diaspora investments that are coming through. But directly on the issue of food security, government did step up and aggressively went out to try and increase the wheat production in the country. It's invited private sector players to engage in joint ventures, to finance uh, crop production, to expand the land on which uh, wheat has been grown in this country. And what that has led to is the biggest wheat harvest Zimbabwe has seen since the 1960s. And many here believe that this could lay the foundations for the country to eventually become self-sustaining in terms of wheat production, also grain production. We know that uh, government uh, uh, you know, financing will continue to ensure that there is food security in that regard. Uh, but I think the biggest problem is indeed the fact that inflation continues to weigh down people. They don't have much money to spend. And uh, the expectation is that hopefully things will get better in the new year. But you know, that is the reality for many Zimbabweans right now. Very difficult times.
Well, thank you so much for that. Farai, Farai Mokuchia speaking to us from Harare, Zimbabwe, and Otto Mahui was speaking to us from Cairo in Egypt. Well, the Horn of Africa, as with other parts of the continent, was significantly impacted by the Russia-Ukraine conflict. But for the Horn, the food crisis was made even worse by the impact of climate change. Let's link up with CGTN's Raman Young for more on Africa's climate situation in 2022. Thank you, Hannah. Now, for many, 2022 is supposed to be the year of climate action. After all, we're coming into this year with many pledges having been made by world leaders the year before in Glasgow during COP26. But as 2022 comes to a close, it wraps up as a year that sets a very grim new record on climate change, some at a scale that even climate scientists had not forecast. African countries are being battered by more record-breaking floods and droughts that caused widespread destruction. Let's dig a little deeper into the drastic effects of climate change across the continent, starting perhaps with a headline number that you might have been hearing about all year round. 2022 was the fourth consecutive below par rain season in the Horn of Africa, and that left it in its worst drought in four decades. At least 36 million people are suffering from this prolonged drought, with over 9 million livestock dead across Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia. And drought, remember, isn't just a food and water problem. This sort of crisis tends to snowball very quickly into other areas. By November, the FAO was pointing out that the number of persons without access to safe drinking water that had risen to at least 16.2 million, with households struggling to cope with outbreaks of diarrhea and cholera. But this, remember, is just the Horn of Africa. That's one corner of a bigger continent that's home to 1.2 billion people. Across the continent as a whole, 12% of people in sub-Saharan Africa are facing acute food insecurity as we speak. Climate-linked shocks are also present in Madagascar, Angola, even Nigeria, which had its worst flooding in a decade. Those floods have displaced 3.2 million people while submerging at least 676,000 hectares of farmland. That's like flooding an area the size of Luxembourg twice over. Before the flooding, nearly 19.5 million Nigerians were food insecure, and that number, as we speak, has likely risen. So clearly, the problem is a critical one, but what can be done? Remember, many countries across the continent are net food importers. Nigeria and Egypt between them, for example, they're among the world's biggest importers of rice and wheat. And what most governments have tried to do is to lower the cost of food or food-related inputs like fuel and fertilizer. Nigeria, for example, has kept its largely inefficient fuel subsidies still in place. So has Kenya in the east. Malawi, Niger, Senegal and Zimbabwe, they've all cut taxes on food or fuel. Others, like Cote d'Ivoire and Benin, have introduced price controls as a coping mechanism. But unfortunately, these solutions like food and fuel subsidies, they have limited reach, and governments don't have the fiscal room or the money to keep these programs going indefinitely. So with a view to longer-term solutions in a hotter, more hostile climate, governments have opted for a different set of solutions. Kenya, for example, ended a decade-long ban on the import, consumption and cultivation of genetically modified crops in October, ostensibly as a hedge against more frequent droughts and rising temperatures. In Nigeria, which has an annual food import bill of around $20 billion, the central bank has been working on trying to raise the amount of affordable credit that farmers and agro-processors can get. 
There is a bit of good news, however, despite all the crises that we just mentioned. In a country like Zimbabwe, the country has had its biggest ever wheat harvest since commercial cultivation started there in 1966. After Glasgow, 2022 was the year that COP27 came to Egypt. And it was, of course, convened against a backdrop of multiple crises around the world, including a global pandemic and the ongoing conflict that we're still seeing in Ukraine. African countries had hoped that this summit would draw attention to the severe impact that climate change is having across the continent. And in some ways, it did. After two weeks of negotiations, which went all the way past the appointed last hour, COP27 delivered new funding arrangements and an agreement to figure out how developed economies should compensate developing ones for the damage caused by the greenhouse gas emissions before COP28 in the United Arab Emirates. Adel Mahrouki has that report. The first calls to pay for loss and damage first emerged in 1991 by the Alliance of Small Island States, the most vulnerable countries to the rise in sea levels. Yet the issue was not tackled seriously before 2013. That's why it was widely celebrated when Egypt led the efforts to officially include the topic on COP27's agenda, which established a historic loss and damage fund. The whole uh, notion of Loss and damage has not been discussed. Now it's been discussed at COP27, and they have agreed uh, to establish this uh, fund for compensation. So we're moving more towards achieving climate justice. And Normally, when we try to speak about damage and loss as well as impacted country, we need to identify who, uh, who was uh, responsible for such impact. And this is a... It's a problem itself. It is a dilemma. We are requesting cooperation between developing and uh, developed uh, countries. Uh, developed countries are afraid from uh, litigation or other sort of compensation. They may be asked if they admit their responsibilities. But establishing the fund sparks many debates, the first of which is the definition of loss and damage and which countries would fall into the category that deserves financing. How extreme climate episodes, rise of sea level and biodiversity loss would drag the vulnerability of each country. A committee of 24 countries that will convene in 2023 will be discussing all these details. Experts, however, fear that the longer these negotiations take, the bigger the financial demands will grow. As presidents of COP27 and the upcoming COP28 in Dubai, Egypt and the UAE will be working closely to help in drafting a clearer role for the loss and damage fund. And then these discussions are scheduled during COP28 in November next year. Experts estimate that the fund could be activated by 2025. Adel Mahroui, DGTN, Cairo. The United Nations has warned the effects of climate change are only going to get worse if no urgent sustained action is taken and the poorest countries around the world will continue to pay the heaviest price. To discuss this in a bit more detail, let's bring in Murari Aminu Kano, Director of Policy and Government Relations covering Africa from the Nature Conservancy. He's joining me from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. Um, so this historic deal arrived at as COP27 overcompensation. The first time that loss and damages was actually a discussion item on the table. But how optimistic are you that rich countries will pay for this loss and damages, considering the fact that they did not deliver on prior pledges of providing at least $100 billion a year in adaptation funding? Yes, I think the deal in Sharm el-Sheikh at COP27 on loss and damage is quite historic. 
is historic because for more than 30 years, developing countries have been asking for uh, a facility to recognize the losses and damages that they suffer due to the consequences of climate change. And climate change, as we know, is primarily caused by developed countries, the historic one we are facing. And they have been blocked from this facility being set up. So the setting up of the facility in Sharm el-Sheikh and the agreement to do that is quite historic. And you are right to be a bit skeptical about will the developed countries now fill the pot that has been established. Uh, but I am cautiously optimistic uh, because, like I said, for a long time there wasn't even an agreement to set up the facility. But most importantly, I think the developed countries have now realized the trust deficit between them and developing countries for reneging and refusing to fulfill their commitment of financing for so long. Murari Aminu Kano from the Nature Conservancy there. Thank you. Now that, of course, is a brief snapshot of how the climate crisis has affected food and policy across Africa. As 2022 comes to a close, weather experts already suggesting that 2023 might be even hotter. And that partly explains why the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, is expected to issue a call for a no-nonsense climate summit in 2023 to spur concrete action and a lot less talk. That's it for me. Back to Hannah for the security issues that shaped 2022. Well, thank you so much for all that, Rama. Well, welcome to our segment on security. Incidents of insecurity continued across a number of African countries in 2022. Most of these were brought on by coups, violent extremism, as well as terror attacks. These events disrupted people's lives, stalling economic development as well. Few corners of the continent were left unscathed, from Mali to Sudan, Guinea to Somalia, Burkina Faso to South Africa. Well, let's take a key look at some of the highlights of 2022 as far as political happenings on the continent are concerned. Burkina Faso's military overthrew the government of a president Roch Mark Christian Kabore in January. Eight months later, the new military leader, President Paul-Henri Dambiva, was deposed in yet another coup. The September coup was the second in a year. In February, armed assailants attempted to carry out a coup to unseat the government of Guinea-Bissau. The country's president, Omaro Sissoko Mbalo, said at least 11 people were killed in the attempt. In October, security forces in Chad reportedly opened fire on protesters in several cities across the country, including N'Djamena, the capital, killing at least 50 people and injuring dozens more. The protesters had taken to streets to demand that the ruling military junta stick to its promises to hold elections. In Sudan, protests against military rule continued throughout the year. Sudan's military and civilian leaders in December signed an initial deal aimed at ending the crisis that followed a coup a year ago. And over in Sierra Leone, dozens of protesters and police officers were killed in August as people vented their anger over the soaring cost of living. The West African political and economic bloc ECOWAS condemned the violence. But let's take a more in-depth look at some of the incidents that shaped 2022. 
We begin in Nigeria, where the country is just weeks away from a presidential election. Insecurity threatens to undermine the vote as violence carried out by militants and criminal gangs has continued to plague that country. This despite government assurances that it's winning the war against criminals. Our correspondent, Sema Kende, reports. Nigeria's President Muhammad Buhari has pledged that the country will be safe and secure by the end of his tenure next year. Many hope that will be the case, but they are worried. That's because thousands of people were killed in the first six months of this year alone, while over 3,000 were kidnapped by suspected terrorists. January saw one of the deadliest attacks in the country's history. Over 200 people were killed in the northwestern state of Zamfara, leaving over 10,000 displaced. Many say the situation has become worse since then. A farmer cannot freely go to the farm email alone, just like the way it was before, that you can just go farm you alone and come back without anybody you know, disturbing you or anything. I have the cases of people going to farm and they will not return. I know the government are trying their best to cut it off, but it's still an organized crime to me. From a scale of 1 to 10, I would say um, we'll score them 2 or 3, thereabouts because there has been a lot of loopholes. In February, 1,214 persons were killed by gunmen across the country. In March, suspected Boko Haram terrorists attacked an Abuja-bound passenger train, killing 14 people and abducting 63 others. In June, suspected members of the Islamic State's West Africa province a splinter faction of the Boko Haram terror group attacked a Catholic church in Ondo State, southwest of the country, and killed about 50 people. Security analysts say the illegal possession of firearms has largely fueled the violence. The viability, commercial viability of that criminal act is what is driving, driving them. Now, that's one reason. The other reason is ideology. What you require is ammunition. So, you find out that it's a big business, big business. And then once you hold the gun as ignorant as an ignorant and illiterate individual, you have so much power. According to the Cable Index, gunmen killed 115 people in Nigeria in August this year, among them 89 civilians and eight police officers. 131 persons were kidnapped across the six geopolitical zones of the country in the same month. In October, Local media reported that at least 19 suspected militants affiliated with the Islamic State's West Africa province were killed by security forces in Borno State, the epicenter of an insurgency in the country. Experts want the government to disarm civilians and recruit more security personnel to deal with the crisis. According to Nigeria's security advisor, over 50 acts of political violence have been witnessed in 22 of the country's 36 states in the last three months. This has led to fears that insecurity could affect the 2023 elections. But the government insists it's doing all it can to keep Nigerians safe. President Muhammad Buhari has directed security agencies to ensure stability before December 31st. Several campaigns towards a violence-free election are also ongoing, and security agencies have promised to ensure peaceful polls in February next year. Military commanders say they are also expecting more ammunition procured by the government for the armed forces, raising hopes that the widespread insecurity will end soon.
Hesim Akende, CGTN Jobs. Well, we'll stay with that story. Let's now bring in Achike Chude, an African affairs analyst in Lagos, for a more detailed look at the security situation, not just in Nigeria, but the greater Sahel region. Achike, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a politically charged year for the West African region, from political instability to security challenges. Can you tell us more about this? Yeah, thank you, uh, Hannah. Um, it's it's been a, one would say um, it's it's been a very tough uh, period for West Africa. I mean, all manners of uh, challenges um, confronting uh, the people and governments of uh, West Africa. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, you talked about um, uh, your earlier reports. You talked about uh, the you know climate situation that led to flooding. You know, in many parts of uh, the West African, you know, uh, sub-region, uh, Nigeria, you know, Sierra Leone, Ghana, and other parts of the country, and then you are having a very serious economic uh, challenges. Of course, don't forget that uh, we are just uh, coming out of uh, the COVID, uh, massive COVID uh, restrictions that also imposed a lot of, uh, you know, destabilizing situation on West African countries, affected the economies badly, uh, you know, and then of course the Ukraine war. Uh, with uh, the uh, ban and uh, with the uh, difficulty in uh, bringing essential uh, food uh, stuff like wheat and the rest also affected the continent. But beyond that, you know, is uh, the one that uh, concerns, um, you know, life essentially and their property, and that is uh, insecurity, which has been on the rise, you know, in uh, uh, the sub, you know, in the sub region. And of course, uh, you're also talking about even the spread. Because it's not just that uh, the insecurity issues are just limited to places where they have uh, been occurring for quite some time, but you also have, you know, in, uh, very, for the very first time, you begin to have attacks in places like Togo and then uh, Benin Republic also. So that gives you an idea that uh, it is spreading in a very worrying, uh, you know, rate. Uh, and so obviously uh, the governments of uh, West Africa have been much, much concerned. If you remember. Uh, just recently, about a few weeks ago, they talked about uh, setting up, um, you know, a stabilization force, and this is the very first time that they will be talking about that. Yes, they've had some, uh, you know, similar, you know, certain other operations, uh, really, like in Guinea-Bissau, where they have had to, you know, send, uh, you know, uh, troops to stabilize uh, that uh, country, but we've not had it, you know, in a standing capacity. And so I think that is they are worried about uh, the you know increasing uh, state of uh, insecurity. That is what has brought that about. Not just uh, you know the attempt to tackle insurgency and insecurity and kidnapping uh, that uh, is happening all over you know many parts of uh, the, the the sub uh, continent, uh, but also the issue of uh, the coups that have also brought you know with them uh, political instability in the sub region. So uh, you we are going to expect in the next uh, few. Uh, uh, months, perhaps much more active participation by West African uh, forces acting together jointly to tackle some of uh, these uh, insecurity issues. Thank you so much for all that, Achike. That was Achike Chudo, an African affairs analyst who is joining us from Lagos for a detailed look at the security situation in West Africa. So this is it. I'm just about to be shot. Thank Bottles are being thrown as they do so. Uh, we there are about have three critical bridges <laughs> here in Malawi. That's one of them. We're going to cross that bridge. As you can see behind me, police forces who are replying with gas. Yeah, gas just came in. Gas. So it's all begun now. 
divisions leading the charge into West Mosul have brought us here. Just got to be careful here with some gunshots. This is where most of the fighting has been concentrated. This is the front line now after nine days of fighting. We're about two to three kilometers from the front clear line. view of this front line position. Well, let's now shift attention to the Horn of Africa and specifically Ethiopia. For two years, Ethiopia has seen a conflict that has claimed the lives of hundreds of thousands and displaced millions more. However, just as the year was coming to an end, the Ethiopian government and the TPLF signed a peace agreement. One month on, the guns have fallen silent and there's been a resumption of basic services like water and electricity in parts of the Tigray region. Humanitarian assistance is also being delivered in the Tigray, Amhara and Afar regions. Even so, many are still concerned about long-lasting peace. Here's CNN's Giram Chala with that report. On November 4, 2020, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed authorized a military operation against TPLF after an attack on a federal military base outside of Tigray's capital, Mekele. Government troops from Addis Ababa would be sent, as well as fighters from the nearby Amhara area and Eritrean force involved. The war would drag on for another two years. With communication cut off, it's been difficult to know the exact number of casualties. Thousands, though, are believed to have been killed, millions displaced. A prolonged drought in the Horn of Africa country has made things worse. In early November, the two warring sides met in South Africa for talks mediated by the African Union and signed a peace deal. Any given country cannot survive without peace. War can only destroy human lives and result also in the degradation of the economy. Therefore, the peace accord between the government and TPLF was really highly instrumental. This is something that has created a sense of joy for all and brought a huge hope too. The African Union described it as a new dawn. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed called it monumental. While this would not be the first deal since the war began, it was different. Other than the cessation of hostilities, the TPLF would be disarmed and integrated in the National Army. There would be a resumption of basic services like water and electricity and aid deliveries to the millions of people in need. The only way our problems can be solved is when the problems of Ethiopia are solved. Any individualized approach centering only on one's region, city or locality will not work. I assure you, no individual problem will be solved before the national challenges we are faced with. The African Union which brokered the peace deal is happy with the progress made in Tigray so far. The end of hostilities, better aid delivery and regular communication between the warring sides. Still, despite the optimism, many are still worried. I believe we have to leave what must be left for concerned bodies and focus on the peace gained. I see lots of people meddling in several political agendas of the country, which by the way is creating lots of balance in the country. Media must also be well governed, though freedom of speech is what I support. Despite the guns falling silent and life slowly returning to Tigray, authorities are cautious and have been urging members of the public to support 
the peace process. There are still many who are working day and night to destroy Ethiopia. They are giving us new agenda items for us not to enjoy the peace achieved at least for a month. I ask all of you not to give ear to those people. I appeal to all of you to work with the Ethiopian government with unity, solidarity and the rule of law. I ask you to okay your respective roles in sustaining our peace. Both the Ethiopian government and the TPLF have committed to implement the peace deal and so far it appears to be holding. A high-level AU panel would monitor and supervise its implementation. Experts, however, see it as a win for the continent, describing it as an African solution to an African problem. Grumdala CGTN, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The United Nations has long enjoyed legitimacy as the international arbiter on issues of war and peace. However, in recent months, the UN peacekeeping missions in Africa have been facing serious questions around their legitimacy over failure to security to bring security on the continent. The UN mission in the DRC, known as MINUSCO, and the one in Mali, known as MINMUSA, are some of the missions currently in trouble with both governments and local host communities, CGTN's Daniel Arab Moy tells us more. 2022 saw two major United Nations peacekeeping missions in Africa encounter violent protests against their presence. The United Nations Stabilization Mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo and the Multidimensional Integrated Stabilization Mission in Mali have faced strong criticism by host communities. In the DRC, for example, the protests were spurred by complaints that MONUSCO failed to protect the population from attacks by armed militants. And so there's public pressure and political pressure on these UN peacekeeping missions to go and fight the bad guys, to take the fight to the bad guys. And that's what these UN missions can't do. It's what they've never been set up to do. They're not willing to do it. In Mali, MINUSMA was accused of doing little to protect people from attacks by insurgents. The UN mission in the DRC comprises over 18,000 personnel and it's the largest in the world. The mission has been authorized to use all necessary means to carry out its mandate in protecting civilians under imminent threat. The United Nations Multidimensional Integrated Stabilization Mission in Mali comprises over 17,000 personnel. The missions are meant to support the host nation's efforts to achieve stability and peace. But the two missions have both received varied and at times limited acknowledgement and cooperation from the host governments and communities. The future is going to be more and more messy and it's going to be more and more fragmented. I think UN peacekeeping is not going to go away straight away, not least because it brings in a lot of money because it's funded by, of course, by uh, major UN powers. Protesters in the DRC and Mali have been calling for the exit of the UN missions from their respective countries. Analysts say there is need for a wider consent from governments and communities if UN peacekeepers are to effectively execute their mandate. Daniel Arab Moy, CGTN, Nairobi, Kenya. Well, 2022 has not entirely been a year riddled with political instability for the continent. There have also been a few bright spots. 
A number of African countries went to the polls this year, and despite some disputes, were able to navigate the process successfully. CTN's Luka Sanyawa is back with more insights. In August 2022, Angola went to the polls in an election that some analysts called the most hotly contested election in the country's history. The ruling MPLA got 51.17% of the votes cast, compared with 43.95% for the leading opposition party, the National Union for the Total Independence of Angola, UNITA. UNITA leader Alberto da Costa Jr. initially rejected the results. However, the Electoral Commission upheld those results. This gave the MPLA party's candidate, João Lorenzo, a second term as president. As Africa's largest crude oil producer, Angola is considered an important partner in the region, but wealth distribution is seen as largely unbalanced. On 9th of August, Kenya also went to the polls. The hotly contested election pitted former Prime Minister and five-time presidential candidate Raila Odinga against former Deputy President William Ruto. The Electoral Commission declared Ruto the winner, but his opponent Odinga challenged that result at the country's Supreme Court. The court's decision upholding the election paved the way for Ruto's swearing-in. And although Odinga's party has continued to speak out about alleged irregularities in this poll, the country experienced a smooth transition to a new government. Further down south, in Lesotho, a new party led by political rookie and diamond magnate Sam Matekane won 56 out of 120 seats in parliament. The Revolution for Prosperity Party, however, fell short of securing a parliamentary majority and needs to woo other groups to control parliament. Lesotho has been plagued by years of political instability under previous regimes and is hoping to change its course with a new government. Somalia held its presidential election in May in an airport hangar protected from insurgents. Members of parliament voted in Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, a 66-year-old who ruled the country from 2012 to 2017. He faces the daunting task of rebuilding a nation of 15 million people, which is suffering its worst drought in four decades and has endured conflict since 1991. However, some citizens see the fact that yet another election was successfully held and led to a peaceful transfer of power as a promising sign. Countries such as Sudan and those in the Sahel region postponed their elections due to various political developments. In 2023, 26 African countries are scheduled to hold elections for various positions. They too will be hoping to carry out peaceful processes that could change the course of their countries. Well, it's time now for us to take a short break and return. The Democratic Republic of Congo finally buries independence hero Lumumba 60 years after his assassination.
Welcome back. Well, 2022 was also the year when Africa's nationalist giant, Patrice Lumumba, was finally laid to rest 60 years after he was assassinated. This was after Belgian authorities returned a tooth of the independence hero to his children and a move towards recognition of atrocities that accompanied the country's brutal exploitation of its former colony. The relic is all that remains of Lumumba, the first prime minister of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. CGTN's Kristo Chamringa has more from Kinshasa. The relic of Congolese independence leader Patrice Emery Lumumba was returned to the DRC in June. Lumumba was the DRC's first prime minister after the country gained independence from Belgium in 1960. He was killed by a firing squad in 1961 for his anti-colonial stance. His body was later dissolved in acid. A tooth is all that remained of him. It is a very important step for us to put an end to the painful colonial history with this burial. This is not just a relic, it is his body. In our African culture, when somebody dies in a faraway place, his remains are considered to be his body, be it his hair or fingernails. Now his soul can rest in peace. His remains. Welcome back. And uh, that's going to conclude uh, our program, uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today and for the year of uh, 2022. And uh, we've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again. And, of course, if you'd like to have access uh, to this program for today, uh, Saturday, uh, December uh, the 31st, uh, 2022, uh, all you have to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and uh, that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you'd like to have access uh, to the Pan-African Journal, uh, just go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. You can have access to today's program as well as over 1,200 other archived editions of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. If you'd like to uh, read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out with the music of Tad Dameron and Miles Davis live in Paris from 1949. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. next selection, we'd like to play an original by Tad Dameron, Good Bait. la plus moderne du jazz. Cet orchestre est composé de Tad Damon, un des pianistes de l'école moderne, Miles Davis à la trompette, James Moody, ancien saxophoniste ténor du fameux Crespi, notre ami Kenny Clark à la batterie et Stila à la basse.
jeter l'orchestre de Tad Damon et Miles Davis que vous avez entendu dans des improvisations de style tout à fait moderne. Now, don't blame me. Le même orchestre va vous interpréter maintenant Don't blame me.
written by Ted Dameron, Lady Bird. 